When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Well, I suppose, first thing I want to ask, as I say, is, is the, the book title whenever I hear that song. You know, what, why was it called that and why now is the right time to, to kind of deliver the memoirs? Well, as I wrote it, um, I'm trying to get a title that sort of covered tobacco, aviation, Formula One, horse racing, football, etc. <coughs> and didn't focus on any one of them at the expense of the others. <coughs> and it occurred to me that with every sort of important part of my life at different times, there's been a song which whenever I hear it, takes me back to that era. Um, so I thought, well, whenever I hear that song, works as a title, and then thought, well, I'll, I'll head each chapter with a song title, mm. being the one which takes me back. So, um, I mean, it's, some of them are obvious. You can't hear, you'll never walk alone without seeing the cop yeah. in full throat. Um, and it's you know, the football anthem of all. Um, but, for example, horse racing, um, I've been lucky and had a couple of grade one winners at Cheltenham. And when you have a grade one winner at the Cheltenham Festival, as the horse comes into the parade ring mm. uh, for the winner's enclosure, they blare out at you know, full volume. Heart of Courage by Two Steps from Hell. Now, most of your readers would never have heard of Heart of Courage or Two Steps from Hell, but when I hear that music, yeah. I'm I'm in there bringing in dodging bullets to the champion chase winner, etc. So, in each part of my life, there's been something uh, like that. Yeah. So it's obviously a, a very obvious one with Liverpool, isn't it? With the being, you're gonna have a walk along yeah. and, and do the iconic anthem. I just wanted to, to go back to, to when you, you came in as, as chairman, uh, 2010, was it? Um, how, how did that all come about? Initially, obviously, it's something you, you touch on in the book, but I just wanted to kind of get a little bit more on, on how it all came about initially. Well, it was kind of serendipity, really. Um, it was one of these um, things where my son Michael and I were planning on starting a sports investment business, which he still basically does, uh, it's now called Global Sports Finance for him. Um, and we wanted to try and raise money for a fund. 
So I went to see, or we both went to see Michael Klein, who I'd worked with before when he was at Citibank, and he was now sort of, you know, going out on his own, but advising and raising money for people. Um, and we saw him in London on the Thursday. And he said, look, times are very difficult, you know, because people, investors used to throw money at everything, then the financial crash came. Mm. Now they're only putting money behind people who've got a dedicated record on managing funds. You're going to find it very difficult. But you might like, you know, I know a couple of Russian oligarchs who are interested in buying a Premier League team and they might like somebody to fund for them as a, as a, a chairman. Would you be interested in doing that? And I said, mm, depends on the Russian oligarch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he said, oh, I'm seeing one on Saturday. I'll ask the question, we can see where it goes. And then he brings me in, he hadn't seen Russian oligarch at all. But the very following night, Tom Hicks and George Gillette had also turned to him to ask for advice on what they should do with Liverpool. And his advice basically was, you, you've burned your bridges, you've, you've, you, you, you've fallen out with the banks, you've fallen out with each other, you've fallen out with the fans, you've fallen out with management, and you've fallen out with investors, because you've both been trying to sell the other ones yeah. half, so to speak. You need to bring in the independent chairman. Um, the bank was pushing to appoint a chairman, for yeah. them to appoint a chairman. He said, you need to appoint an independent chairman who can sell the club on your behalf. Um, but that's your option, because if you don't, the bank will. So they reluctantly agreed and then said, do you have anyone in mind? And I'm sure it's because I'd seen him the previous day that I sprang first to mind. I, mean, I would have probably been on his list at some stage, but yeah. if I hadn't seen him the previous day, I probably wouldn't have been the first yeah. one in mind. Why have I got just the person in mind? Yeah, that's like you say, serendipitous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably fair to say with the, the amount of kind of upheaval and uncertainty around the club at the time, supporters, when you came in, they, they were initially a little bit not... A little bit wary, what, what, what side are you going to be coming yeah, in on? Apprehensive would be a fair yeah. word because, uh, and rightly, you know, I'd been appointed by the hated Hicks and Gillette. Mm. Uh, a lot of them thought I'd been appointed by the bank, and that probably helped me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, even though I hadn't been. Um, yeah, I think the word being that I was there to sell the club gave them some encouragement. Mm. Because uh, that was certainly you know, what they would like to see. But if I'd been appointed by them, was I the right guy to do that? Yeah. Um, so it was obviously a gradual process to kind yeah. of gain yeah. the fans' trust. You, you, you mentioned in the book, um, I was reading it last weekend, I just started laughing because I'd completely forgotten about it, but some of the kind of weird and wonderful personalities who, who were coming to the, the forefront because yeah. it was a distressed asset, but obviously one of the most famous football clubs in the world. and. The name Yaya Kerdy jumped off off the page at me. Can you just kind of run me through the, that that story? Because you know it's just bizarre one. It was bizarre. I mean, George was convinced that he got the buyer. I mean, the first meeting we had, he, he said, "This is going to be the easiest transaction you've ever done." I've already got a buyer. I've been over to his palace in this little, tiny, the, the smallest uh, emirate in the mm. UAE. Um, I've been to his palace, um, he's willing to pay 600 million or something. Why? <laughs> um, and uh, he's keen to get on with it and, and you, the job's almost done for you. Alright. I said, 
correctly, didn't pay too much attention to it. But you know, if that was going to be the case, well, easy, easy money sort of thing, let's, let's move on. Hmm. Um, and George carried on these discussions. Um, the, the bank had appointed Keith Adelman as their observer uh, to, the, to board meetings. He wasn't the director, but he was allowed to sit in and yeah. follow what was happening. And Keith was pushing me. You've got to take control of this. You've got to take control of this. You know, George, George says he's got this buyer. You need to get in there and take control of it. And I said, Keith, it doesn't smell right. It really doesn't smell right. If I go in and it all falls apart, I'll be blamed for it falling apart. It's going to fall apart, I promise you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the excuses got weirder and weirder. Um, his mother's being kidnapped and all, all, all sorts of things. Yeah. And it, it just in the end, we got some um, security intelligence people to check the guy out. And uh, the story that he was the heir to the throne was that he would have been heir to the throne if his father hadn't been deposed 46 years before. <laughs> um, nice. And Yaya Kurdi was his representative, mm. who George was dealing with, but he was a pizza salesman. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you couldn't make that. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I suppose that's one of the difficulties of doing the job you were, you were taken on to do. It's kind of weed out the time wasters yeah. and, and the, the vetting process must yeah. have been difficult because, you know, the club was essentially for sale at a knockdown price. And, you know, as I say, it's one of the biggest kind of institutions in, in all of sports, not yeah. never just football. So it must have been a, a tough tough job you had on your hands of weeding out the, the wheat from the chaff, shall we yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, you, you know that you have a formal process. You also know that some of the likeliest bidders wouldn't want to follow the normal process. I'm too important to go through mm. that kind of process. Um, so you had to take cognizance of anybody who came from outside the process and declined to take part, but I'm definitely interested. They might be. <laughs> um, you know, you wouldn't get a Roman Abramovich, for example, just following the due process. Yeah. It just wouldn't occur that way. Um, so you had to you had to at least be willing to listen, um, but there were some there were some weird ones. I mean, Kenny 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 Grant, yeah. um, he, he made all sorts of declarations and public statements. Um, never even signed the NDA. Never even signed the yeah. didn't, didn't get the information memorandum. Never signed the non disclosure agreement. Um, never basically contacted us and ran it all through through the media and turned yeah. out to be a charlatan um, as you would expect yeah so but obviously when you came in you you, you know you, you mentioned and the Six and Gillette were, were kind of seeking advice and, and they were told you know you've you've, you've been your bridges with, with everyone and, and everything you know essentially sell up and move on did, did you get a sense of how kind of just like they were on Merseyside at the time, because you know it was incredible. Um, yeah. the, the, the depth of feeling towards them yeah. was unbelievable, really. Yeah, I mean, I I knew how much they were disliked. Um, you know, their story to me, we're good guys, really, we're misunderstood. 
I could see. I could see where there was an element of truth to that. Certainly, why they would have self-belief in that, so yeah. to speak. Because yeah. it, 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 when they bought the club, which they did entirely with debt, with absolutely no money of their own, they said to the fans, and meant, and meant, this is where the, the sort of self-belief comes in, uh, meant at the time, this is our debt, is not the club's debt. You don't have to worry about it, it's not the club's debt. And because then, with the financial crash, their collateral was certainly not very attractive to the bank, and they hadn't renewed the facilities with somebody else. So when it came to renew the facilities, the bank said, actually, <laughs> we accept your collateral last year, but you know, frankly, that's not good enough anymore. Yeah. We need the club as collateral. So they said, fine, yes, go ahead. Now, they never intended that to be the outcome, but it was the outcome. Not surprisingly, the fans said, you lied to us because they'd like to. <laughs> they saw it as beyond our control. You know, it was the bank's yeah, fault. Yeah. That's where the kind of self-justification we're good guys really, it's not, you know, but you know, they lied. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. And you, you describe it in the book about your, your first meetings with, with John W. Henry, how you, you kind of showed each other the presentations of, of what you, you kind of felt you, you just could offer each other. You know, how, how, how was that in the, in the early days before the, you know, the New England sports ventures, as they were known, became really serious? Well, right, right from the start, it, I went to see them at Fenway, um, and they showed me around. And it, it was, the parallels were incredible. Mm. Um, you know, here you had Boston Red Sox, a huge traditional name wonderful heritage, hadn't had any success forever, so to speak, um, had this old, run-down uh, pitch, stadium, and then bought an adjacent site uh, to build a new one. And when John came in, he, he said, well, why, why would you why would you get rid of this wonderful old setting? Why would you do away with the famous green monster? So, hmm. Well, we can't expand it. We can't, you know, we can't rebuild it. We can't get planning permission, etc., etc. What do you do? He got planning permission and he rebuilt it. Um, and he thought, well, you got Liverpool, fantastic heritage, no success for a very long time in, in the Premier League, at least. Um, again, it had the Champions League, which is a big one. Um, with a stadium, this is Anfield, the cop, etc. And yet, planning to move to uh, a site in Stanley Park, the parallels were, were were there, and they'd been there and done it, and they'd seen the difficulties and they'd overcome the difficulties. Now, this is too good to be true in a way. You know, you've got yeah. somebody who's, who who knows what they let themselves in for. Yeah, so I, I suppose, as you say, the, the similarities were striking that immediately, I suppose, in your position, makes you think, well, they've got a proven track record of doing it in Boston. Mm. Why can't they do the same in, you know, in, on Merseyside? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we were fortunate. We had Peter Lim keen to buy. Um, so the first offer we got from New England Sports Ventures, as they then were called, uh, was disappointingly low. Um, 
and I was hoping they'd come in at what I thought was a sensible figure, and it was like half that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when Peter came in, then then we had then we had a genuine market price. You had two bidders, both keen to buy. Um, and ultimately, when it came to the, the, the court case with um, Higgs and Gillette, that that was the for me the the determining factor. If you got two people both wanting to buy, that's the market price. Yeah. 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 Um, um, you mentioned in the book about your, your early dealings with, with Rafa Benitez, who was obviously manager at the time, and um, set up meetings and, and didn't quite work out because you know Rafa had his hands tied with whatever it was he was doing at the time, football operations side of things. Um, how, how, how was how was that as a kind of working relationship? Because obviously at the time he, he was revered, and you know what what he said went in the fans' eyes. It must have been a little bit of a difficult adjustment. Yeah, I mean I. I never wanted to change the manager. Obviously, it defines new owners, and it's for the owners, the new owners, to decide who they want to manage. It's not for me. Mm. You, a few months before making a change, the owners might not like the person I choose, and is that in his ear within within months? You know, that's that's definitely not in the plan. <laughs> um, and then you get uh, Rafa really acting very strangely, uh, very difficult. When I finally got to meet him. Um, it was like a, a two-hour diatribe um, of all the ills of the club, which I listened to because you know he needed to get off his chest and I needed to hear it. So, yeah. it, so it was yeah. it was it, it was in your face stuff, but yeah, you could see why he was um, in a high state of anxiety, um, and and he was passionate. You like that that the latter. <laughs> yeah. Um, the second time I met him, and basically just made that more of a listening piece than anything else. The second time I met him, he repeated the whole two-hour diatribe, and, I, and I, I must have interfered twenty times and said, "But, but Rafa, you've already told me that. <laughs> Let's move on." And it was no, but you have to hear this. You have to hear this. Yeah. Okay. Tell me it again. Right now, the Rafa, I've already heard. <laughs> So, it, it, um, so he, he, I don't think he was mentally in a good place at yeah. that time. Uh, you know, the, the pressures from various sides, I think, had got to him. Um, and then, you know, but the, he did respond quite well to my request because he said he wanted this one, this plan, and this plan, and this plan. And I said, look, there's no money. <laughs> there's no money. If you want a player, you've got to put in writing. Why do you want that player? Yeah. I mean, he said he wanted a left back, and I said, after you bought six <laughs> left backs, yeah. Yeah. why is this one going to be better than the other six? Because if you want him, that's yeah, fine. But you've got to sell somebody because we don't. There's no money. You've got to sell in order to buy. Um, so you need to be telling us why this one's going to be the right one, why the others were not the right ones, and. Who you're, who you're signing to get it. And to be fair to Rapper, I mean, he, he did go away and he did put in writing the whole piece, um, which I was impressed with and I liked. And I thought, right, right, well, now we're really making some progress. And, and, and then went to see him for another meeting and he brought his lawyer with him. And I just said, 
uh, I'm going on holiday, I'd like you to do with my way. Like, what? <laughs> we were here to discuss yeah, various things. Yeah. And walked out of the room. That's why I said, make us an offer. Yeah. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. See, that's, that's really interesting now when kind of people have dealt with Rafa over the years and he's the type of manager who he'd take calls about, he'd take calls from journalists on, on, on holiday and, and he'd do it out of earshot of his wife so she didn't, you know, kick up a fuss, you know, why you work on while we're on holiday. Yeah. So for him to, to have done that, you know, kind of jars to me, that, that seems a little bit strange and as you say, he perhaps wasn't in, in the, the, the best state yeah. at that I don't time. Think he was, I, I, I don't think he was in a good place. Mm. And, and the pressures, you know, from the owners, um, there was a lot of, you know, Rafa had his own PR, the executive team had their PR, the owners had their PR, and all three were talking to the media against yeah. the other two. Well, you were probably <laughs> part of that media they were talking to. No, certainly no, the, no, not certainly the Echo was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three time. Um, yeah, something the echo was. Yeah. Um, just want to move towards the uh, October 2010 with, with the, the court case. Um, remember when I started doing this role, actually I spoke to a couple of uh, solicitors from Slaughter and May. And the thing that, that always sticks out in my mind is, is one of the quotes, they likened Hicks and Gillette to the, the, ter- the, the, the kind of antagonist in the Terminator where you think you've got rid of them and, and, and it just springs back up and comes from another angle and it, it just seemed like that that particular week was just incredible for how chaotic and tumultuous it, it ended up being. Yeah, it was. It was uh, and I've, I've said to several people, you know, you, I, I, I think that the fans recognise all the players, the fans recognise the manager, but Chairman of the Grey Suit. I never expected to be recognised in the street yeah. like that because of the role. Um, I never expected to be on the nine o'clock news every night for a week, sort of thing. Was this thing played out in the high court? Um, that was that was a you know, that wasn't the role I'd foreseen when I, when I took it on. I knew it was high profile, um, but that doesn't mean to say that the individual dealing with it becomes high profile. Yeah. The issue is high profile. Uh, it was tumultuous. That was that was quite a week. Yeah. You know, just kind of was thinking about it when I was writing up a few notes and whatever else and there just seemed to be every morning you'd wake up and you'd I'd see in the newspaper the they'd try to get a super injunction from a Texas court and you know, then the arguments on the other side of the Atlantic was a lot holding no weight in UK law and, and just a, an incredible, crazy week, and, and you ended up eventually getting it over the line and, and you know overthrowing the ownership, if you like. Yeah, and I think um, that's where the front cover of the book is is me leaving the High Court because I think you know, whereas I wanted a title that covered each chapter of my life, so to speak, I had to pick a photo uh, rather than you know lots of photos. Yeah. and, and you know, in, in that sense, the the victory in the court on that and being greeted by the Liverpool fans outside the court, all singing and chanting uh, was was a fabulous moment. Yeah, uh, funnily enough, I was actually on work experience at the Echo that week. When, when, right? Yeah, so I, I kind of remember seeing it, probably a, a little bit closer than than, you know, a 
general students in the second year at the time would have. Um, and you know it was making my head spin, and I was just I was in the offices across the road there, and yeah. I was obviously in the high courts in London, and just a you know a kind of um, pivotal moments. You know, the people now are 131 years of history. That was one of the one of the biggest. That's where the song always brings back happy memories. Mm. Yeah, um, I suppose turning our attention then towards the, the, the current ownership and the, the guys who you essentially ushered in. Um, are you are you surprised that um, the news came out a few months ago that they were not necessarily just looking for external investment, but maybe assessing their options with regards to a, a full sale? I was surprised, but not astonished. Um, you, they have shown with Boston that they're in it for the long term. You know, they're not short-term investors going in, flipping in for years, five years, mm. yeah, But they've been here, what, 13 years now. Um, they saw the Chelsea deal, and I think suddenly realised that prices were maybe higher than they had in their mind of the increase in value that they uh, yeah. had during the time. So why don't we test the market? And um, I, I spoke to Tom, Tom Perna, and, and asked him, were they seeking to sell? Were they seeking investment? What was the, what was the objective? And, he's, and he said, you, there isn't one. You know, we're testing the water. Mm-hmm. If there's an yeah. offer which is a very high figure, then we'd be, we'd be daft not to look at it. If there's an investor that wants to come in, we'd certainly be willing to look at that. We wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't get either and we continue to hold it and we're comfortable with that too. So it wasn't like we have an exit plan. It yeah. was more um, just testimony. Yeah. yeah. See, see what's out there. That, that seems to be a similar theme from you know people we've spoken to. The testing the water is the phrase that seems to be the one that's regularly yeah. used. It, it, it seems to be, um, you know, from the from the outside looking in, um, pretty much everything is is what you'd want for an elite club at Liverpool in terms of the infrastructure, you know, new new ground on the way or new stand. Um, training grounds, two years old, 50 million power facility about five, six miles north of here. The only thing that is perhaps holding them back is the ability to, to compete with you know, the, the likes of Manchester City and, and now Newcastle yeah. in the market, transfer they've, market. They've done a pretty damn good job getting... Yeah. Um, I mean, the year they got, what, 99 points, higher than anybody else had had to win it and still not win it. I mean, yeah, crazy. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, they've shown shrewder management. You, they've got a team um, with a fantastic manager, but they've got a team that has competed at the top level for quite a few years now um, without spending quite to the level mm-hmm. that some of the others have. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm keen to I'm keen to sort of step back a little bit and. Look at the Premier League. Um, you know, you've got until Abramovich bought Chelsea, it had a decade 
we had nine out of the ten years, it was United or Arsenal that won. It was becoming a duopoly like Scotland. Yeah. Roman came in and Chelsea made it three. Mansour came in and City made it four. Fenway came in without spending the same amount of money, but actually made it five. Now you've got the Saudis coming with Newcastle, making it, making it gradually, and will be making it six. And the reason Liverpool is worth what it is, the reason United and Chelsea were worth what they are, is because the Premier League has become more and more the Premier League. You know, where else do you get six teams capable of winning the league yeah. at the start of the season? No one else. You're Bayern or Bayern or Bayern. You know, it's um, yeah, it's PSG or PSG or yeah. PSG. Yeah. So okay, Spain, you've got three. Um, but the value of the Premier League has gone up because you've got Titans playing each other every week, not just El Clasico, so to speak. You've got Titans out there playing each other every week. And there's, yeah. there's a big one. Um, so the collective has become worth more because of the Mansours, the Abramovich's, the, the Saudis, <coughs> and, um, and, and Fenway's capability of, uh, of keeping up there. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, in terms of how they've they've gone about it, they've they've done it in, uh, like you say, in an incredibly shrewd way of of hiring the best in class, whether that's manager, sporting director, you know, yeah. data analysts, and, and whatever else. But there seems to be sort of the, the people I've spoken to a, a gradual reluctance, acceptance that it's getting harder and harder to 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 keep afloat with the sustainability model that they have in terms of. They're not able to spend a hundred million on on three different players in in the same year or, or whatever else, and and that's something other clubs can do. And I think, in that regard, the Premier League does need to look again at how the financial fair play rules operate um, to make sure. <coughs> Now they've got half a dozen teams who can win it, they've got to make sure it continues with half a dozen clubs who can win it. You don't want to go back to a situation where it's City or United every year, mm. City or, at the moment, City or um, well, Arsenal are looking good this year. Mm. Um, but yeah, for a few years it would just look like City and Liverpool. Um, but that's fine if you have two or three years in a row where it's just the two. You don't want ten years in a row yeah. where it's just the two. Yeah, you want the group of teams up there. Yeah. Um, in terms of actually, you know, selling the football club, um, what 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 does that process look like? You know, how how does the ball get rolled and how, how does it, it get to completion? I don't think there is a blueprint. No. Um, yeah, I think um, what we did and what I think Rain with Chelsea and I would think doing the same with United um, so if the, the nearest thing to a blueprint in a sense is you have a formal process but recognise that there's a parallel informal process right? nice. that, that you have a formal process which sets dates by which you want bids and you, if you want to bid come and see us get an information memorandum, get the facts, 
go into a data room to confirm the facts, etc. Um, so there's that kind of formal process, which occurs with any M&A activity and classically run by, um, it was BZW in, in our case, Barclays, but it, it could be any investment bank in a sense. But you've got to recognize that some of the bidders aren't people who want to go through that process. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you wouldn't get Roman Abramovich going through that process if he was coming in today. He'd be going in the informal process. And you've got to be, you can't say, we're not going to talk to you, Roman, because you're not going through the process. <laughs> yeah. So you have, you have the two in parallel. Um, George's, George's United Arab Emirate um, Prince, had he been real, <laughs> wouldn't have gone through the process. Yeah. So you've you got you to kind of run the two together and be willing to be flexible and allow the informal to join up with the formal in yeah. the last minute. Yeah. But one, one of the things that I've been kind of struck by you know, over the last few months with regards to, to Fenway is uh, if they are happy to explore the merits of, of a full sale, if they're not just going to hand the keys over to to anyone who, who you know doesn't necessarily have the long term best interests of Liverpool FC at heart. You know they weren't supporters when when they joined, but certainly over the last decade they've become to love the club and and its culture and its people and everything that it stands for, and, and they won't just hand the keys over to the highest bidder and, and I, walk off. I'm I would be astonished if they weren't concerned about the legacy they leave. I don't think they're people who will walk away to just the highest bidder thinking, right, well, we got, we got yeah. a great price, bought a good deal, let's move on. I think you, their heart is in Liverpool now. And Yes, it might make sense to exit. At some stage, it will make sense to exit, whether it's now or 10 years' time or whatever. Everybody exits at some stage. Mm. Um, but I think it's important to them that they, that the, the custodian role is passed to the right people. Yeah. Um, you were involved with Harris Splitter Sports Entertainment Group, you know, having a perusing you know the potential of, of owning your, your club Chelsea um obviously Todd Bowley's t- taken over there and you know spent an incredible amount of money to kind of transform Chelsea for you know you can see clearly see they're looking at the next you know 10-15 years or, or whatever it would be do you think that's something that's um that, that you know FSG would be looking at if they were to bring on external investments you know for for a percentage of, of the club someone who's going to be looking similar kind of long term? Um, I don't think... I think they'd be looking for somebody who was thinking long term, yes. I don't think they'd be looking for somebody who was going to... How do I say this without it sounding wrong? Well, spend silly money. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want to you know, allege that's what... Todd Bowley is doing because time will tell whether it was silly money or whether it was very shrewd money. Um, at first sight, I think people would say it's be, it's looking scattergun, and it's looking like you've loaded Graham Potter up with too many players, and, and causing confusion amongst the team. Mm. Uh, but 
this, the, the January purchases of Chelsea were the type of person that John Henry has looked for. You know, they've been younger players, yeah, young, promising players who look like players who could be around for the next five, six, seven years. Um, whereas the summer ones, um, Raheem Sterling, Aubameyang, Koulibaly, as it were, are at a different yeah. age group yeah. and didn't look to have a long-term vision uh, involved. Um, so, I, as a Chelsea fan, I, I take heart from what was the what looked like the planning behind the January purchases rather than the, the uh, summer ones. Mm. But who would want to be Graham Potter faced with you know, like 32 players or something to pick, pick, pick uh, not And from a team viewpoint, you bring in one or two new players in a season is fine. Bring in seven yeah. or then 14, <laughs> seven twice a year or something. How does the team know you? I, I, I don't know. It seems too many. Yeah. But, yeah. So, I mean, I think... I think um, John, John and Tom would always want to focus on a gradual change, gradual changes. Um, you know, the year they bought Virgil van Dijk and Alison Becker, that was the, those were the two purchases that kind of transformed yeah, the team because they were, they filled the two gaps, the two, the two holes. Slam dunk signings, I think yeah. Jürgen Klopp called them. Yeah. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Uh, well, just finally then, uh, obviously with you know Liverpool FC uh, officially kind of or maybe unofficially you know potentially for sale, um, would that that be something you'd ever look at yourself? Maybe come come back to Anfield or is, is that that's I mean, past? I, I did speak to um, not Josh Harrison, David Blitzer, because they've they've gone back to Palace and they've yeah. come for it. Um, the other people in our consortium, <coughs> Chelsea, I spoke to, um, in case there was an interest in becoming a co-investor, not yeah. to acquire, but become a co-investor. <coughs> um, but they were all really foreign billionaires with a pad in Knightsbridge or Kensington or Chelsea, um, and they came to London fairly regularly. And when they came to London, they were going to watch Chelsea. So they were all Chelsea fans, not of the you know, 68 years going down there I like me, mean, yeah. but you know, that was their team, uh, and they enjoyed going down there, and they were attracted at the idea of an investment into a football team, and Chelsea specifically. When I approached them about Liverpool, didn't approach them, <coughs> would never approach them about Manchester United, but the result would have been the same. It was, but I've got a pad in London. Yeah. Um, so they weren't, that's not the type of person who's going to come in really at uh, Liverpool. So I wasn't keen enough to um, go out and search for investors, new investors, whatever again. Um, yeah, I think if, any, if, you, if anybody wanted my assistance in it, then fine, I'd be willing to consider mm. it, uh, uh, but not not actively. Yeah, I 
mean, it's, it's interesting that you, you kind of reference that as, as, a, as a stumbling block. Um, I mean, FSG operating yeah. in Boston, aren't they? And yeah, it yeah. hasn't you yeah. know, harmed Liverpool. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, hasn't harmed Liverpool at all. And um, you, Tom, Tom lives in LA. Um, John lives in like Florida and Boston. Um, they don't come to any match, but they, they pitch up at various uh, mm. matches, so they're actively involved. And they've had yeah, Mike Gordon over here on a more full time basis in the past. Um, you, you can make it work. I mean, it's, it's just that these are. Maybe because John didn't already have a pad in London. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's it, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, you mentioned Mike Gordon there, actually, uh, just, just before we finish. I did want to ask about him because I've spoken to Tom there a couple of times and, and he's um, you know very polished and he's got a background in television and I think that's often why he's kind of put forward on FSG's behalf to, to speak to the media. John W. Henry is... Um, the kind of patriarch of, of the group from the outside looking in, but much less is known about Mike. Um, we know he's kind of r- runs the club or, or did run the club on a day-to-day basis, but someone who um, actively shuns the media spotlight. What, what, what's he like as a as a um, as an operator? Because he's um, he's you know he's made some very shrewd decisions at Liverpool over the last certainly since you know bringing in Jurgen Klopp what eight years ago. Yeah. Um... <coughs> I don't know Mike particularly well. Um, he, he he wasn't in the team that negotiated the purchase, right. so to speak. I mean, he was an investor in uh, New England Sports Ventures, but he wasn't on the, mm. the sort of smaller team that was negotiating that. So from the outset, I didn't uh, know him. He came in at a later stage. Um, I met him on a few occasions, but I don't know him well. Everything I hear is top class yeah. um, <clears throat> and I have no reason to think otherwise mm. uh, I think it appears to have done a, a great job he was quite early on um, he was the one at Fenway who put himself forward as being keen to get actively involved and, and be a, a serious investor yeah. in, in Liverpool um, you know, and, and FSG have taken in other investors into their uh, operations. So, in some ways, they've they've um, kind of Tom and John uh, have kind of um, created and realised some of their value by bringing other people into FSG level rather than at the, yeah. the Liverpool level. Um, and you know, they, those guys might. Come forward with a, a more direct investment uh, in Liverpool at some stage. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, see. Still a lot to be decided. Uh, so, Martin, thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.